Hi, Foxies. The episode you're trying to listen to is right around the corner, but first, we need your help. You may have noticed that there are no ads during the Fox and the Foxhound. We prefer this, being ad haters ourselves, but we need your help to keep it that way. If you love this show, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash the Fox and the Foxhound. We have Patreon tiers starting at just $1 a month. And not only will you get fun extra content and an unedited cut of every episode two days early, you'll be directly responsible for keeping the show going in all of its ad-free glory. Thanks to all of our existing patrons, past patrons, and hopefully future patrons. Enjoy the episode. So we're opening the show a bit differently for a little while. Hopefully you all know us. We're the Wilsons, and we are reading through the Harry Potter series together, me for the first time. If you want to know more about us and this show, please check out thefoxandthefoxhound.com. We are all living in an unprecedented time. For the first time in our memory, our entire globe is facing a common threat at the same time. We know how easy it is to feel scared and hopeless, like the Dementors are swarming. If you're listening to this, you are part of our extended family. If you need to talk to someone, consider our ears open. If you need us to tell you a terrible joke, all you have to do is ask. We're here for you. At the end of the show, we'll remind you how to contact us. And remember, in the immortal words of Albus Dumbledore, it's the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more. Well, we finished Tiger King, and now we're not sure what to do with the rest of our lives. Yeah, but now we know what to do with the podcast next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, the fox and the foxhound tiger king wait till the fan fiction harry potter and the tiger king comes out holy shit i'll start writing it now it'll be out in about three and a half years that sounds amazing it it, it'll be worth every second of waiting so we have been staying at home yeah as per our orders yeah um we live in north carolina so the governor did issue a stay-at-home order which is going to start on monday at 5 p.m which will be yesterday for you listening to this oh yeah that's right yeah um but we've already been doing all that stuff yeah. We don't go anywhere unnecessarily. Um, no. You work all day. Yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, was laid off as part of the crisis, as a lot of people were. So I've been working on a lot of projects that I've always wanted to work on. Like a lot of projects. I've cleaned out the shed. I've detailed and washed my car. Yeah. I built two flower beds. I built a birdhouse. I've done a lot of gardening. I've been doing a lot of bicycle riding. Yes. Getting a lot of exercise. Yes. Um. Having some socially distanced outdoor hangouts with friends. Yes. Which is like something that you all need to remember. You are still allowed to go outside. Absolutely. You can go for walks. You can go for runs. You can hike. If you want to see someone that lives close enough to you, you guys can meet at a park Mm -hmm. or somewhere. Just stay, you know, a good 10 feet away from each other. Mm -hmm. And you can still talk and enjoy each other's company and have a drink and just don't hug or shake hands or anything as long as you're alive and healthy which i hope you all are try to find some joy and some beauty in life during this super dark time i know it's not easy yeah i can't go outside because of the goddamn pollen yeah so it's (laughs) full-on spring here it's It's actually um the day that we're recording this it's 87 degrees yeah Fahrenheit for all of our British listeners. I don't know what that is, Um, Celsius. It's hot. Yeah, we'll look up the conversion next time we take a break. It's hot. Hot. (laughs) That's hot. 
Who used to say that? Paris Hilton? Paris Hilton. Hot. That's hot. The phrase was, that's hot. That's hot. Also, like, look, you ain't got to be all up in somebody's grill to hang out with them anyway. It's true. Like, I kind of prefer a six-foot distance when I'm hanging out with people anyway. And I am a hugger. Yeah. You know, I like yeah, to hug people. Me too. Um, You know, I will snuggle up on a bench at a bar with my bestest dude friend he's literally done that recently um so it's not like i'm one of those people that doesn't like touch or anything but like damn you ain't got a close talk no you know let this be a lesson for everybody like six feet is about how far you need to be from other people all the time if you're in line at the grocery store give them six feet at least give them three you ever check out at the grocery store and someone is like Got their head on your, like, are we dating now? (laughs) Lay your head on my shoulder. No, if I did that to you in the grocery store, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, what's happening right now? Like, like, I don't know you. Call security. (laughs) My big plans, I'm going to bleach and dye my hair. Nice. Kevin's going to help me do it. After kind of considering all the different possible colors, we did land on a color that is called virgin pink. Oh, God. Virgin pink. Because why the hell not? This stay-at-home order, by the way, in North Carolina goes through April 29th. Like, we've got the time. (laughs) Yeah. And if it looks absolutely terrible or if we totally botch it, it's only Kevin that's going to have to see me and he's already married to me. So... Too late. No one leaves. No one leaves. So we're covering two chapters today. We are. Bobaton and Darmscrying. <laughs> Why? <laughs> the second one, The Goblin of Fire. Okay, The Goblet of Fire. Oh, God. Quite a lot to cover in these two chapters. And I am kicking us off by reading first this week. Early next morning, Harry woke with a plan fully formed in his mind, as though his sleeping brain had been working on it all night. He got up dressed in the pale dawn light, left the dormitory without waking Ron, and went back down to the deserted common room. But Dumbledore suddenly stopped speaking, and it was apparent to everybody what had distracted him. The fire in the goblet had just turned red again. Sparks were flying out of it. A long flame shot suddenly into the air, and borne upon it was another piece of parchment. (laughs) Automatically, it seemed, Dumbledore reached out a long hand and seized the parchment. He held it out and stared at the name written upon it. There was a long pause during which Dumbledore stared at the slip in his hands, and everyone in the room stared at Dumbledore. And then Dumbledore cleared his throat and read out, Harry Potter. Oh, my. So that that was a decision that you made about... That was a choice. That was a choice that you made today. All right. Very nicely done, though. I got to hand it to you. It's pretty good. We kick this off, Beaubaton and Durmstrang, the chapter, with Harry's brilliant plan. His letter to Sirius. His letter to Sirius. I had such another Ralphie from a Christmas story moment with this, you know, because I mean, like, this is not the first time Harry has reminded me of Ralphie in a Christmas story, but it's the first time in like a book or two that he has. And to me, it was like this letter to Sirius. He's like, I'm going to write to Sirius. I know. I'm going to tell him I was like half asleep when I wrote that first letter. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. And all I could think about was Ralphie writing the paper about the Red Rider BB gun. And he's like, and this thing which tells time. And he's like, 
yeah, he just really believes in what he's writing. Yeah. <laughs> it just so cute. Harry's confidence that this is going to work is really cute. It, it's it's like, oh, honey, which is another kind of like the modern bless your heart, by the way. Like bless your heart has really become, oh, honey. And by the way, as he goes to send this letter, Hedwig still pretty pissed. And you know who else is pissed? Hermione. Yeah. She's like, that was a lie, Harry. Yeah. You lied to Sirius. You straight up lied to him. About your scar hurting and all this stuff. Ron really snaps at her in that moment, by the way. I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were on like so, why he reacts so strongly. So what, said Harry. He's not going back to Azkaban because of me. Drop it, said Ron sharply to Hermione as she opened her mouth to argue some more. And for once, Hermione heeded him and fell silent. I think he's just like, dude, like Harry's going to do what Harry's going to do. Yeah. You know, like there's there's no point in even like getting into some contentious shit about it because. OK, I think that this is a result of them getting older and getting to know each other as friends and realizing like, dude, just don't go there with him. So you're kind of reading this more as a, a moment of like on the side to Hermione. The subtext there is come on, like don't engage in this because yeah. I was reading it as he's being protective of Harry. In that moment. And I was kind of like, it's just that too. I could see that also, actually. It just seemed a little, it's a little random Said to me. sharply. Sharply, you know, and, and just kind of shuts her up. This is like not the best chapter for Hermione. She gets really dismissed a lot in this chapter. The next moment of this happens in Defense Against the Dark Arts, which is really kind of the next thing, you know, that, that happens in chronology anyway. So they go to Moody's class. And... Moody says he's going to be, you know, casting the imperious curse on them. Hermione has a completely valid question. She's like, so you just told us last time that this is an illegal spell and that it's like you're not allowed to do this on another person. It's not legal. Like, it's a really valid question. And yeah. he just, to me, Mad-Eye's reaction here is reminiscent of that moment in Prisoner of Azkaban with Snape, with the werewolf lesson, when Snape is asking these questions and no one's answering them except for Hermione. And then he calls her an insufferable know-it-all. And Ron has the clap back to Snape of, if you didn't want the answer, why did you ask the question? Yeah. But like Mad-Eye's reaction to Hermione here, to me, was kind of the same way. He's like, he basically points to the door and he's like, you don't like it, you can get out. She's asking a completely valid question here. Yeah, but this is sometimes like how things are when you're a student. You just get shut down. I think this is how things are when you're a female student. Well, that's probably true, too. Yeah. This is like I took D.A.R.E. in school. <laughs> D.A.R.E. Drug Awareness Resistance Education. Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Oh, Drug education. Abuse Resistance Education. Yeah. And this would be like as if. We went to our D.A.R.E. class and they said, okay, today we're going to do cocaine. You need to know, like, what this is. That's exactly what this is like. Yes. I mean, I get Moody's point in teaching them this, but, like, I just feel like there was another way that could have been handled. I, I don't know. To me, like, I just, I felt really kind of defensive about Hermione in this chapter when I was reading it. So Moody does proceed to put the Imperious Curse on children. Uh, fortunately, he does not make them do anything you know, terribly controversial. Dean Thomas hopped three times around the room singing the national anthem. Lavender Brown imitated a squirrel. Neville performed a series of quite astonishing gymnastics he would certainly not have been capable of in his normal state. 
Which is an interesting point. So like under the imperious curse, you can actually force someone to do things that they that are not kind of like natural abilities for them too. This is not a new concept with mm. like magic. Okay, what do you mean? In magic lore. JK didn't come up with this. This is something that you see a lot. Like mind control? Is, yeah, which is using magic to control what someone does. Like hypnosis. Someone's under a spell. Mm -hmm. Even back to like the old fairy tales, like they were under a spell and didn't realize that when they looked at someone that they couldn't recognize them or yeah. they were under a spell. So they were forced to steal the king's crown. Um, even in that series Lock and Key that I recently watched. Oh, yeah. That's based on graphic novels written by um, Stephen King's son. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There is a part where they use one of the keys, the magic of one of the keys to make a fellow student like do crazy stuff weird. like dance and throw herself on the table and she can't control her bodily movements weird okay yeah so that's exactly yeah. like it and it also calls to mind those kind of like they're often at county fairs or like the theater where i used to bartend all those dumb hypnotists, the hypnotists that like, i'm gonna count my fingers back to three and when i snap my fingers you're gonna think you're a dog yeah and then the person was like roof 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 and i'm like no dude but, no way. And here's the thing. You talk to someone who participated in it and they will always say, no, like, I really don't remember doing that. Like, they will try to convince you that they were actually hypnotized. And I think it's it's the power of suggestion and the person doesn't want to admit that they were, like, making a conscious choice about it. Yeah, because what's more embarrassing <laughs> to get up there because you see people that, like, it doesn't work on them and he mm -hmm. makes them sit down. Yes. We saw this at the fair. Like, okay. Yes. And on the count of three, you're all very relaxed. And you're going to raise your right hand slowly. And one guy just doesn't raise his right hand. Yeah. And he's like, oh, it looks like yeah, I'm having a hard time hypnotizing you. You can go sit back down. Like, oh, you're not a mark. Right. Now, if I was up there, I'd be like, nope. <laughs> nope. Not barking like a dog. Not raising my hand. I know that I'm at the fair talking to some hack job. But the chances that you would have volunteered for it in the first place are no. really low. I mean, yeah. like the what's more embarrassing to get up there and just not be hypnotized? Right. And be like, no, I thought it was bullshit. He didn't hypnotize me. So I sat down or to admit I felt so bad for this guy. Like you would probably feel so bad for yes. the hypnotist that yes. you would just I would do it. go along with it and bark like a dog just so he didn't look like the hack job that he is. So that he wasn't embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely correct in that. Okay, so then Mad-Eye moves to Harry and we get this really cool description of what the Imperious Curse feels like when it's cast on you i thought that was so interesting isn't it because he gets like relaxed and calm it was the most wonderful feeling harry felt a floating sensation as every thought and worry in his head was wiped gently away leaving nothing but a vague untraceable happiness he stood there feeling immensely relaxed only dimly aware of everyone watching him and listen i gotta say can i get some of that imperious curse but you know what I think the metaphor is? What? Ignorance is bliss. Mm, look at that. Being controlled by the media or the government or some brainwashing entity or whatever is a happy, fun place to be. Yeah. Because you don't have to think for yourself and go through the pain of thinking for yourself. True. True. It, it just, I mean, it does sound kind of wonderful. Like, yeah. I mean, but of course the double-edged sword of that is that under this spell, under this curse, someone else is completely dictating what you do. So obviously that's, you know, not so great. So Mad-Eye tries to 
using the curse, get Harry to jump onto the table. And Harry kind of naturally, there's not really a lot of like effort that he's putting forth to this. And I mean, remember Moody had said some people are just not able to fight this off. And, you know, some people are just a little more skilled at doing it. But like Moody has not, at least in these pages, taught them any practical way that you fight this off. (laughs) Just as like Imperio, Imperio, here, fight it off. Well, can you tell us how? And so Harry... Here's this voice in the back of his head going, well, that's kind of stupid. Why would I do that? Yeah. And I don't think it's some like magical, mysterious voice. It's just his own voice going. "Mm." Yeah. This would be my own voice going. Do I really feel the compulsion to raise my right hand and bark like a dog? I don't think I do. Right. Right. This guy's a county fair hack job. (laughs) Harry's body is like trying to do one thing and then also trying to do the other. And Jesus Christ, it breaks his kneecaps or at least it feels like it did. What in the actual fuck? It makes him do it four more times. (sighs) And no one fixes his knees. But Moody's stoked. He's like, yes, dude. See, look, Harry fought it. Yes. He fought it. I'm going to do it to him again. Keep fighting it, Harry. He gets and by the end, really Harry's just like, it. no. And he doesn't fall. He doesn't jump. He's just like, he beats it kind of. Yeah. And Moody's like, everyone watch. He's doing it. Watch his eyes. That's where you see it. Like Moody's getting really, really jazzed that Harry's able to fight this it's off. It's very disturbing. You feel like it's disturbing. It's alarming. Yikes. Uh, they have some other classes to go to. You know, throughout this time, we just know that OWLs are approaching. We know that Ron and Harry got top marks in divination for their bullshit homework, which I thought was hilarious. And oh yeah, Snape may or may not be poisoning them at some point in the near future. Teacher of the Year. So when they're talking about prepping for the owls, right? Owls are a fifth year thing and they're in fourth year. This is kind of like SAT prep. Exactly. You would start about a year before you actually had to take them, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I didn't prep for the SAT, and it showed. (laughs) But there was something interesting. I think McGonagall or someone says it. She's like, brings up a pincushion who, like, somebody messed up the spell on it, and now the pincushion, like, retracts if you try to put a pin in it. Like, it's scared. And it made me think about how there's this weird living state. Ooh. In the wizarding world, mm-hmm. right? Which is, in our world, things are alive, right? Things right. that are alive are carbon-based. Okay. And they have some sort of animating principle. Remember John Nash in Beautiful Mind? Yes. He wanted to discover what are the mathematics behind the animating principle of life. Right. Something is alive, and then something's all of a sudden dead. Yeah. And once it's dead, once like a body is dead, it's the same as like a rock. Or a tree that has been chopped down in the forest rotting away. It's just like this nothing thing. But before that, it's animated with this life force that living things have. Well, in the wizarding world, things can become like enchanted in this way that they're sort of alive, but not. Like this pincushion. The pincushion doesn't have to be fed. Right, right. It probably doesn't have to sleep or anything. But it has, like, fear and feelings. It's very strange that there's this, like, world in between our world and the world of just static objects. Well, and I I think not for nothing, you know, this is 
an object that used to be a hedgehog, I think, that was transfigured into a pincushion. And she's saying the transfiguration is incomplete because it has it's retained. stuck halfway between Ooh, the two things. Yeah. But it kind of made me think about how um, my grandma used to personify things all the time. Like what? Like she'd say, oh, yeah, this whole apple here, he's got a brown spot on him. So I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to eat him, buddy. I'm going to take him out there in the yard. I'm going to eat him up and you're going to be good. And yep. she would talk about. Inanimate things as if they were alive. And then she would also talk to them. And you might have noticed that I do the same thing. You definitely do that. Because I got it from my grandma. I'm like, I'll pick up a notebook and say, come on, buddy, we're going into the other room. I'm just going to put you right here on your little shelf. Yes. And it's like, I love, I think this is another reason that I love stuffed animals. Like, I'll have a lot of plush animals, like way more plush animals than like you can ever imagine. I've accepted it about you. Yeah. And it's because like, I've always kind of been that way where I personify things and I look at things as like kind of being alive and even though they're not. It's anthropomorphizing. Anthropomorphizing. Yes. yes. One of my favorite words. I don't really I said personifying, I but that's what I mean. Anthropomorphizing. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. And it's not you super clear when you transfigure an animal into something else, like what happens to that animal. I I don't really know. The school doesn't seem to care about things that get lost no. in between not really. states of being. No, because McGonagall only brings it up to highlight like how bad of an example of, you know, performing that spell. She doesn't say was. that poor hedgehog. No, she's like, you're going to fail your OWLs. So the Triwizard Tournament is coming up. It's common. And there's a sign that has yes. been erected in the entrance hall. Yes. And it's like, in a week, our guests are joining us from the other two schools. Your classes are going to end half an hour early on Friday, which, you know, the trio is super happy about because that's potions for them. And they're like, sweet, our teacher won't have time to poison us. Like things you should not have to worry about at 13, 14 years old. But... They are going to put their stuff away and then they are going to meet and greet them like outside the school. It's really very polite. Yeah, it's nice. It's very nice. They're welcoming guests from another country. Indeed. And over the next week, Hogwarts is getting cleaned. There's a whole lot of emphasis on appearances being made. Like McGonagall won't let Pavardi wear the butterfly clip in her hair. It's like, girl, this is the 90s. Butterfly clips were everything in the 90s. You gonna make that girl take that butterfly clip out of her braid? It's not cool. This is how you clean your house before people come over. Yes. Oh, God, yes. So that they get the impression that your house is always this clean. On a side note, is it terrible that I've had the thought that one of the silver linings of all of this is that our house, which is always fairly neat, we don't really have to worry too much about it being spick and span clean because no one's coming yeah. over anyway. But because we've had so much time, it is cleaner than usual right yes, now. Yes, I know. This is freaking ironic. Oh, my God. The yard is mowed. The cars are washed. Like, the floor's vacuum. Like, it's a weird this, time. This ship is tightening up. Let it me tell it you really something. is. It I got to do something all day. I mean, for sure. During this time, this cleaning spree and the portraits are getting scrubbed and all of that, Hermione is really digging her heels in about this spew campaign. And she's not getting a lot of interest from other people about it. Like Neville joins, but only because he's like scared of Hermione. He just wants to shut her up. <laughs> yeah. And she goes on this diatribe because she references Hogwarts a history. She just really goes off about it. 
about how it's like revisionist and how they very conveniently are leaving things out. I mean, she's not wrong. And Fred and George say, hey, we've been down to the kitchens. They love it. They love doing this. Like you'd kill them if they couldn't do that. And we'll hear this again from someone later on in these two chapters. Yeah. But they're like, they love it. They love serving humans like this is what they do. It's so, you know what it reminded me of this time? Because I know this is not the first episode where we're talking about Spew. You know, Spew has been introduced and it always gets my wheels turning every time I read this book. But today, when I was rereading this chapter, I was really reminded of like DSS removing a child from the custody of parents that Mm. are unfit to care for them because at, at the 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 child can seem and be very happy with that parent but it doesn't mean that that's the best way for their life to be and so i feel like in in that metaphor hermione is dss here right look the slaves are happy they're singing right it's yeah, like it's problematic it's really problematic but it's like it, it's so it's such a weird moral area because do you intervene and create your possible trauma and you know intense sadness knowing that what you're doing is for kind of the bigger picture yeah good i don't know it's really tough let me drop this bomb on you oh god i think the house elves as a people might be under an imperious curse oh my you mentioned this to me a couple days ago. To serve as house elves. They don't know any better because right. they're under a curse. Maybe in their natural elf state, they don't want to be slaves. They don't want to do work for free. They're not happy doing that. They might have some magical land somewhere where they all live. But whatever the house elves are that we've met, yeah, which so far, work at, all we've met is Dobby, uh-huh. who belonged to the Malfoys. Right. What's old girl's name? Winky, who belonged to, um, which one of the guys? Barty Crouch. Barty Crouch. Mm -hmm. And then the house elves at Hogwarts. That's all the ones we know. That's all the ones we know so far. So as far as I know, maybe they've all been under an imperious curse, but there's millions of other elves that aren't. Right. And, And, you know, it would certainly explain Dobby. You know, you mentioned this kind of other time we're going to hear the sentiment, and we'll explore this in a little bit, but... You know, Dobby is a deviation from normal in terms of his reaction to all of this. So, Yeah, and that deviation is brought up later, too, but we'll get there. Indeed. We also get Sirius has finally replied to Harry's letter. And it's pretty short and sweet. Yes, it is. Just like Harry's. He says, nice try, Harry. I'm back in the country and well hidden. I want you to keep me posted on everything that's going on at Hogwarts. Don't use Hedwig. Keep changing owls. And don't worry about me. Just watch out for yourself. Don't forget what I said about your scar. Serious. Right. So he's back in the area. And you know what I think was um, smart of JK? What? Is that she showed you that about a week had gone by since Hedwig left and Sirius's letter came back. Yeah. And Harry mentions like, oh, he's closer now. Right. Than he was. But I think it's nice that she justified that in saying, okay, like the Triwizard Tournament is on this date. We're on this date. Here we are a week later. Yeah. She, she could have not even like, she could have not even said in Sirius's letter, I'm back in the country now. 
Right. Or had Harry say, oh, he's closer now. Mm-hmm. She could have let that just be the exposition. Because before I read down and was like, oh, Harry sees that, like, Sirius is closer. I'm like, oh, well, last time it took two months or something for Hedwig yeah. to get there and come back. Now yeah. he's there and back in a week. So that's about three days there and three days back. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that J.K. Rowling handles the very first part of the school term really well here because this is a um, it, it ends up working, but I think it would have been easy for it to not work. It's a really strangely paced book yeah. um, and that you'll see that continue. You know, you'll have an entire chapter that might only cover a day or even an hour, but then you'll have one chapter that's covering a month or two months. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're already in October and it seems like it was just a chapter or two ago they were coming back to school. Mm-hmm. So it it's really like speeds up, slows down, speeds up, slows down. And that's just kind of the way the pace of this book has to be because of the, the way the events unfold. And yeah. I think she handles that really well. So all the kids gather outside, and the first school arrives, which yes. is Beaubaton. Beaubaton. From France. From France. And they're all looking in the sky. They're like, are they going to come riding in on broomsticks? Like, what's right. happening? Right. They have no idea and how they're going to come. this giant, like, magical carriage pulled by these giant horses. Yes. Comes flying up and lands in front of the school. I thought I might actually read this description because okay. it's great. They saw a gigantic powder blue horse-drawn carriage the size of a large house soaring towards them, pulled through the air by a dozen winged horses, all palominos, and each the size of an elephant. Whoa. Now that's making an entrance. Yeah. Holy crap. And so who pops out of the carriage first? It's this like little Bobaton boy, and he is going to put the stairs down, and then he's going to pop out of the way. And then Madame Maxime. Madame Maxime. And she is a sight to behold. She's dressed in all black like Mm -hmm. Johnny Cash. I wear black for the downtrodden, for the poor and beaten down. (gasps) Except you have to do it in a French accent. (laughs) I wear black for the downtrodden. The French don't turn their W's into V's. I can't do a French accent. (laughs) Madame Maxime is... About Hagrid's size, in terms of height anyway. I mean, Hagrid is also like wide and I don't think Maxime is, but she's a very large woman, but she's olive skinned. She's got this, she's very classy. She's like covered in opals. I mean, she's like, can you imagine what an image? What I thought at this part is I made a note and I've said this before. Her writing reminds me so much of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's because the British sense of humor differs from the American sense of humor. A lot of British sense of humor from my perspective has to do with absurdity. Okay. And casually presenting absurdity. And so I think C.S. Lewis really does that in Chronicles of Narnia, which I'm rereading again right now. Yeah. So like in American writing and film and stuff, it's like all of a sudden. They heard the creaking of a door, Mm. and a small shaft of light came down the hallway. And as the kids peered into the hallway, to their wondrous-eyed appeared a magical creature like they'd never seen. It was a rabbit, except he was wearing a top hat for some reason. 
right? There's like this buildup. Yeah. With British writing, I feel like it's, and following the creaking of a door, the kids pop their heads into the hallway to behold a rabbit wearing a top hat. It's very casual. It's like they just casually drop very absurd things, which is like the sense of humor is kind of like that. But I think the sense of storytelling is like that. I agree. So Madame Maxime, very impressive, stately woman. She has these giant horses and Dumbledore assures her that Hagrid will take care of them. And we get the following line. First of all, she calls him Dumbledore, which I think is precious. And then she also says, The horses drink on a single malt whiskey. I love that. That's all the horses. Do you know how much yeah. whiskey would it take to fill Jesus one of those horses? Jesus Christ. Wow. So. I'm glad you did that because I was going to ask you for your best Madame Maxime impersonation. Oh, okay. So let me get the full Dumbledore line okay. because it's great. Dumbledore, I hope I find you well. My pupils, my steeds require a forceful handling. They are very strong. And then she's, she finally says, very well. Will you please inform this Hagrid? That the horses drink only single malt whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Because you figure she's got to have a deep voice if she's yeah, like. They a, even say that she has kind of a deep voice. Yeah, but she just this wonderful French accent that we also get with another new character that we meet in just a few minutes. By the way, the students from Bobaton also arriving. You know, Madame Maxime makes quite an impression, but the yeah. students are also there. And they're all freezing because they're just like wearing their silk uniforms. Like, did they not think to check the weather? Like, they didn't bring any cloaks or anything. They're just standing there shivering. They don't have robes. They're all in powder blue. Yeah, powder blue silk. It's, I mean, it sounds very fancy. I love it. It's kind of Velvet Boy vibes. Totally VB. So Bobaton is Velvet Boy vibes. Yes. VBV. If you are not familiar with Velvet Boy, like if this is maybe your first episode you've listened to, just, you know, Go I can't back. tell you which episode it is, no. but it's fairly recently. It's this season we, in, I think, introduced Velvet Boy. And we came upon another Velvet <laughs> Boy example, which in our favorite collective TV show, Little House on the Prairie, yes. there's an episode where they have a carnival. And at this carnival, there's a guy giving balloon rides. And I think he's wearing, like, powder blue, too. Something like that. And he's like, Mary, would you like to ride on the balloon? And he has, like, a ruffled shirt, and he's very velvet boy. Oh, God, he's total VBV. Oh, my God. Velvet boy vibes. (laughs) Well, next to arrive is Durmstrang. And they arrive by ship just kind of coming out of the lake. Now, this is a lake, so it's not like they sailed into the lake. It's like a whirlpool, and they, I don't know if, like, the whole ship apparates. Some kind of port key or something like that. Some kind of portal. You know, I'm not sure. But it's a gigantic ship, and the language about it is that it's essentially almost like a ghostly kind of skeletal ship. Yeah, it's a really different vibe. It makes me think of the ship in Goonies at the end. Okay, yeah, that, I think that that is appropriate. Everyone gets off of the ship and they're all wearing fur and we meet Karkaroff. And here's my vocal assignment for you, because Karkaroff's voice is described as being fruity and unctuous. And so my challenge to you is I need to know what a fruity, unctuous voice sounds like. God, I don't know. Let me see if I can find the dialogue. I also like I'm not sure I know what unctuous totally means. I'm going to Google it. So here's the definition for unctuous. Do you want the definition? Yes. Okay. It is excessively or ingratiatingly flattering 
or oily. Dumbledore, he called heartily as he walked up the slope. How are you, my dear fellow? How are you? Oh, my. <laughs> Very gregarious also. Cockeroff. Fruity, unctuous, gregarious. Happy to be there. <laughs> I want to know, just kind of like while we're on the subject of Karkaroff, what's your take on him? What's your read of him? This is our first time meeting Igor Karkaroff. He seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's got kind of like whitish hair, like mm-hmm. a little wispy goatee type of a beard. I think he's probably like five years younger than Dumbledore, maybe. Yeah. I mean, okay. now, granted, Dumbledore might be 700 years old. Dumbledore's but as far as like, old. I think that he looks about five years younger than a muggle version of Dumbledore. 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 <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was really good. And last to come off of the ship, much to Ron Weasley's delight, is one Victor Crumb. Oh, my God. Holy Talking shit. about fucking boy crush on this guy. I have so much to They're say about like, this. They're just like, oh, my God, it's Victor. Like, I have the toy of him and everything. Well, I had the thought. Like, I thought it was a little strange in the notice. This is the first time I've ever connected these dots. The notice that when they're arriving, you know, next week, it says they have to, like, put their stuff away and then come. And I always just thought that was, like, kind of pragmatic. But I wonder if they did that so that everyone wouldn't chase after Victor Crump for autographs. Which is what happens. Yeah, well, no one has a quill. But no one has anything. Exactly. But, like, the girls are freaking out. Ron's freaking out. Yeah. And I thought, this is kind of strange. Like, this student signing autographs. But then I thought about basketball players. Right. College basketball players get crazy famous because we live in North Carolina and the, I don't keep up with basketball, but my brother keeps up with Duke basketball and Katie Dizuk, shout out, shout out to Katie Dizuk. <laughs> Who probably does not even like basketball. <laughs> um, but I thought about Grant Hill, who used to play for Duke. Like, even I know that name. Christian Leitner. Like, yeah. those dudes were so good. Even LeBron, before he joined the NBA, was like, LeBron fucking James. Like, mm-hmm. people wanted his autograph. I once ran into J.J. Redick, who was a Duke player when I was in high school in uh, RDU in the airport in Raleigh. And, I mean, he it was like a celebrity was there. There were like 10 people around him taking pictures, autographs, all of that. Yeah. And he's a college basketball player. Yeah. And Ron even says he didn't know Crumb was still in school. Because remember, like, Durmstrang, they don't even know where it is. You, they don't yeah. really, like, Ron and Harry, until, like, you fucking on the Hogwarts Express on the way to school this time, didn't even know Durmstrang was a thing. You know? So, like, Ron didn't even know Crumb was still in school. But it does make Crumb even more impressive as a Quidditch player, the fact that he's still school-aged. Yeah. I think he's probably a sixth year. He's got to be. I mean, yeah. he's got to be at least 17, you know? Yeah. Um, he's got to be like in his final year or whatever, but still somewhat of a prodigy, it seems. I mean, no one, we've not run into any school age children that are like super skilled at anything. So he's unusual and he's a very, very talented young man. And then we move into the chapter Goblet of Fire. The, the same title as the book. So, I mean, that that automatically maybe sends up a little red flag. This is kind of an important chapter. Yeah. A lot happens in a really short period of time. It's like 48 hours or something. Yeah. So the Great Hall is all set up with the four house banners. Mm-hmm. Um, everything looks super nice. They're all waiting for their food as usual. The plates are laid out and everything. And then the big administrator's table is set up. 
and there are two empty seats, which we don't know who's supposed to be there. Right. Because the judges are going to be Karkaroff, mm-hmm. Madame Maxine, mm-hmm. Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Right? Yes. And then two others. Yes. Two other mystery people at this point. The new students come in. They don't have, like, special tables for them. I mean, remember, the whole kind of spirit of this tournament is for everyone to mingle and get to know each other and make new friends. And so the Beaubaton students go sit with the Ravenclaws. They sit at the Ravenclaw table. The Durmstrang students, much to Ron Weasley's chagrin, sit at the Slytherin table. Yeah. Do you feel like that is already giving you a sense of something? I feel like it. Okay. Okay. I think she is very clearly trying to make a point there. Ron is completely obsessed with where Victor Crumb is sleeping. He can have my bed and I'll just sleep on the floor. I'm like, okay. And then he brings this up again. Like six pages later, he again is like, okay, but where are they sleeping though? Who do you think that I would act this way towards? Oh, that's a famous a person. Great question. Dak Shepard. Dak Shepard? Yes. I was thinking Rob Thomas. Okay. From, both from of, Matchbox 20. Yes. Rob, Rob, you can sit over here. You can sit over here. So um, can we talk about your third solo album? Oh my God. Okay. Who would I act this way about? Um, a girl or a guy? It doesn't matter. Um, what's his name from Jurassic Park? Oh, Jeff Goldblum? Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. I really, really just like need to have a conversation with that man. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. Like when you really admire someone, when you think that they're just the shit. But like, I don't know. I still find this a little weird about being obsessed with where someone's sleeping. Like, Ron, do you want to watch him sleep? Like, it's it's a little weird. It's a little weird. My God. Well, as everyone's kind of settling in. You know, Hermione's getting a little defensive about Hogwarts because anytime you've got a group of students who are outsiders, they stick together. And I mean, they do what groups of kids do. You know, one of them kind of, especially like the Beaubaton crew, seem to be maybe like making fun of things a little bit. I hate this feeling that Hermione is experiencing when someone like comes into your home or your theater or someplace that's like really special and important to you and they're being derisive or derisive. Yeah, the way they're like looking at the plates and like checking them out to see what brand they are type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and the Durmstrang students are kind of approaching the place with a little bit more curiosity. It's really the Beaubaton that are maybe being a little bit rude. And Hermione's not cool with it. She's like, but they didn't have to come here. You know, they could have brought coats. They didn't even know. It's not even that cold. Like she. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I think that the the girls are really pretty because they're French girls. And so I yeah. think Hermione's like, ugh. Yeah. It's like my buddy Dave told me that when him and his wife went to Paris and Dave's wife <sighs> is really, really pretty and very well put together and well dressed. Yeah. They came back to the hotel after the first day and she went, ugh. French girls. They're all so freaking pretty. Always pretty. I mean, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, everyone is just always beautiful. And let me tell you, it's not even the clothes. It's the attitude. It's the effortless, casual, cool thing that the French have that we just don't have. I'm going to the bookstore. Yeah. But I'm not going down there in sweatpants and a hoodie. I'm going to dress like I'm going to a freaking 
cocktail party. Right. So I can go to the bookstore. That's what I love about Paris. Everybody's so attractive and their clothes are all nice. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, you know, it can bring out the green eyed monsters. So you're saying you think Hermione may be a little bit jealous. She here. might have a little jelly belly. She might be. It would be very normal for a 14 year old girl yeah. to be jealous. There are boys at Beaubaton, too, by the way. They're probably super handsome, too, just like all I'm the boys sure in they Paris. Are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and very well dressed as well. And then we get to meet. The prettiest girl of them all. We do get to meet the prettiest girl of them all because she comes over because she wants some bouillabaisse. Oh, have you finished with this? The bouillabaisse? Oh, can I can I take the bouillabaisse? That's my fleur de liqueur voice. You know what it instantly made me think of? What? In the movie The Beach. Oh my God. That girl. Would you like to come to the beach with me? He's obsessed with her. The girl from the beach. The I've French always, girl from I've the always beach. joked about in that movie where she's like, would you like to come to the beach with me? Like, I would already be halfway to the beach with a bucket in my hand and one of those little plastic shovels. Let me tell you. Let me tell you the women Kevin is obsessed with. <laughs> the, the French girl from the beach, whose name I cannot remember, that actress. Um, Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live. Yes. The girl who played... Jesse in Walking Dead, but she's also she was oh, what is her name? She was in Virgin River. She was in Virgin River, which is just terrible. Like don't don't do it. And she was also in American Horror Story in the first season. She was the young version of the maid. Yeah. She's quite beautiful. I get it, but he's obsessed with her. <laughs> and then who was the other one? Oh, I can't think of the other one. You've got another obsession that I can't even remember. God ridiculous i'll think of it if i think of it later in the episode i'll shout it out ron is so taken aback from how beautiful this girl is he says she's a vila she must be a vila because i'm speechless and hermione's like all right boys like pick your jaws up off the ground now you're embarrassing yourself tighten shit up you know she's like if you guys would pay attention you would have seen who those two empty seats were for because Harry's not as taken aback about Fleur, but Ron makes this comment of they don't make them like that at Hogwarts. A real Ugh. eye roll line yeah. from Ron. This is not Ron's best book, by the way. Um, but Harry's like, I think they make him OK at Hogwarts. And he's looking at Cho. So he's still noticing Cho. Yeah. And she's like, guys, guys, like, let's focus here. <laughs> I fucking love Hermione so much. Bagman and Crouch. Ludo Bagman and Barty Crouch. Those are our, our two mystery guests behind door number one. They are going to be on the panel of judges during the Triwizard Tournament as well. And they're joining them for the feast. Dumbledore's reviewing these rules and procedures. You mentioned uh, just talking about who's going to be on the judging panel. Madame Maxime, Karkaroff, Dumbledore. Now we know Bagman and Crouch. And then he goes on to say... Um, what the Triwizard Tournament is. And he says, there will be three tasks spaced throughout the school year, and they will test the champions in many different ways. Their magical prowess, their daring, their powers of deduction, and of course, their ability to cope with danger. Woo! The champions will be chosen by an impartial selector, the Goblet of Fire. Now, it says throughout the school year. Does that mean from Halloween until the Christmas break? The tasks are going to happen throughout the school year. 
So will they go back to their respective schools, the Bobaton and Durmstrings? No. Now, the trio wonder about that at some point in this text, but no, they're there. They're going to stay there. Presumably, and in fact, I think this might even be explicitly said later in the book, they're taking their classes on their ship and their carriage, respectively. Like, they they are still having their lessons. They're just essentially doing it remotely. Um, <laughs> they're being homeschooled. Which is a feeling we are familiar with Yeah, <laughs> right now, remote working and remote school. But no, they're not going to go back. And school year, I mean, they mean Halloween through May. That's when those three tasks are going to happen. So these three tasks are spaced out throughout the year. He also says, and I thought this was interesting, there's no backing out. Nope. Like once you commit to this thing, think about this before you put your name in the cup. Yes. You cannot back out. You ha- it's like a magical contract. He says it's a binding magical contract. So you have to finish you it. So if the first it. task scares the crap out of you, like, oh, well. Too bad. You have to keep going. Yeah. Um, he's going to draw an age line around the Goblet of Fire so that you have to be 17 years old or older to submit your name. Yeah. And uh, something that I remember seeing in the Goblet of Fire movie. Like in passing when I had it on. I remember seeing it as this like big giant thing. It's very ornate in the movie. In this, it's a goblet. It just looks like an ordinary goblet. He just pulls it out of a case. Yes. Oh my God, that reminds me. There is something that I thought was so hilarious and it's typical British humor. Are you ready for this? I was laughing so hard. During all of this, when Dumbledore's like, oh, you know, impartial judges and the judging panel, and it's going to be three tasks, he says, like right before he starts this, he says, the Triwizard Tournament is about to start. I would like to say a few words of explanation before we bring in the casket. And then we have the what? Harry muttered. (laughs) I thought this was so funny. Yeah. (laughs) Because it wasn't like, the what? Harry exploded. It wasn't like, it was... The fact that he just muttered it and there's just an aside and he mutters it to no one in particular. I'm sorry, the casket? <laughs> it just, okay. it reminded me of like, to me, in this, it's like, before we bring in the casket and then Harry just goes, the what? <laughs> like, just to the air. I don't know why. That was so hilarious to me. But yes, there's going to be an age line. The goblet itself is very humble simple i like this so much better than the way they did it in the movie yeah it just has like a little bit of blue flame shit coming out of the top otherwise it looks like a normal goblet so now you know what the object the goblet of fire is i feel like before this you might have had kind of maybe like a general sense i mean what was your sense of like what the goblet of fire was just some giant six foot tall olympic torch thing but you didn't know like have any idea what its purpose was or why this book would be called Harry Potter um, and the Goblet the of Fire? The only thing I know about is why did, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire is like a thing. That is a thing. With the fandom. And we're going to get to that very soon. Yeah. Not today, but very soon. And so anyone who wants to enter it, they just have to write their name and their school on a slip of paper put it into the goblet and they have 24 hours to do it from this speech yeah it's sitting on the pedestal that the sorting hat usually sits on in the entrance hall yeah and so that's where it is so everyone has access that way too i think is kind of good because you could enter your name without anyone seeing you yeah enter your name absolutely you can have some privacy if you want it you can also be showy about it if you want to yeah 
you kind of have some agency in that. There is, before we get to the selection here and before we get to Fred and George trying to get past the age line, there's a weird moment with um, Karkaroff and Harry and Moody because Karkaroff kind of runs into Harry when everyone's sort of on their way out of the Great Hall and he notices Harry's scar and, and has this really, we have this familiar moment for Harry where people are recognizing him. And I mean, there are even some of the Durmstrang students are like just openly pointing at his forehead and being like, oh, it's Harry Potter. But Karkaroff is just kind of like stuck there. And then Moody is basically like, do you have any business with him? Because if you don't have business with him, you need to get to step in. I love this. And Karkaroff is like, there's like fear and anger. Like these two are clearly not strangers. Right. And Moody seems to be able to buck up to a lot of people like Snape and stuff. And they kind of respect him or they fear him. Absolutely. Yeah, we've had this reaction from Snape now. We've had this reaction from Karkaroff now. And we have had allusion to this reaction about Lucius Malfoy. So that's that's something to pick up on. So Fred and George try to get past the age line. <laughs> they decide that they're going to take just like a drop or two of aging potion because they only need to be a few months older. And you guys, this is Dumbledore who put this age line there. Like, you think he hasn't thought of this? Yeah. My God. So they do it. And sure enough, they make it past the age line. It like catapults them out and then they grow a long white beard. Yeah, it backfires big time. And then Dumbledore walks out laughing at them. It's like, I did try to warn you. Don't you think, to me, I've always read this as the kind of punishment, so to speak, for someone trying to get past the age line was something that Dumbledore also like wrote into the charm. Because yeah. isn't that just his sense of humor? Like, oh, you you tried to make yourself older. OK, here you go. Now you're really, really, really old. And that would just be something that he would find so hilarious. But Gryffindor does have a candidate in Angelina Johnson, who is actually 17. Yes. And who JK specifically mentions is black. Exactly. So we do kind of finally have an explicitly stated person of color. Yeah. Which is really nice. Which made me think about the Harry Potter series and people ask, you know, why there's not more diversity mm -hmm. and which is a tricky thing. Like, why are there not more black students there? At the same time, I feel like if anyone is going to write black characters, yeah, then you better not ignore black culture and the black experience through history. Sure. So what we don't really know, I guess, is, I mean, I'm assuming that the Harry Potter universe takes place in our world. It does. So that normal history has taken place. Yes. There was a World War II and a Vietnam and JFK yes. being assassinated and all this shit. Absolutely. Yes. You know, so... We don't know her background right. as a black character. We don't know where she's from. Right. But it just had me thinking, like, how do writers accept the challenge of diversifying their characters? I know. But still including the story. Is it J.K., a white author's place? to write the story of a black character? I don't know the answer to this. I don't this either. is just something interesting that I've never really thought about before. And I don't know enough about black culture in the UK to know what that would maybe even look like or how that would read. Yeah. If someone did take the time to really write Angelina Johnson, for instance, 
culture into her character. Yeah. We also just don't get very much time with Angelina Johnson as a character, but we do get more time with Lee Jordan, who is also black. Mm -hmm. And we do have more time with Dean Thomas, who is also black. Now, one thing I don't know off the very tippity top of my head and listeners, please, please, please feel free to send this in to me like you did with the uh, cobbing thing. I don't know if Lee Jordan and Dean Thomas are both explicitly stated to be black in the series. I'm not sure. I, I know they were know. cast with black actors, yeah. but I'm not sure. But yeah, it. I mean, it's it's something. It's something. And and I, I have to go, okay, well, at least there is some attempt here to say here is a black woman. Not only is Angelina Johnson like a really cool, like she has a great moment here because she put her name in the goblet. But also, remember, she's on the Quidditch team, and she's really freaking good. Yeah. Like, this is not the first time we're meeting Angelina. It's just kind of the first time that it's mentioned that she's black. Yeah. Yeah. So, very, very interesting. I love her. There is a really funny British phrase that I ended up Googling here, but I still don't really know how it's used. So, when her they talk about, okay, so now what? It's Saturday. What do we do now? Tonight, they're going to draw names. But how are we going to spend our day? And they're like, oh, let's go to Hagrid's. And Hermione gets all excited. Oh, I haven't asked him to join Spew. Let me go grab my buttons. And then she runs off. And Ron says, what's she like, said Ron, exasperated. And he says this to Harry. And I found myself kind of going, what does that mean? So I Googled, like, British phrase, what, and I ended up finding, like, what are you like, I guess is the phrase that how it's usually used is what are you like? And it's like a rhetorical question that you would ask someone after they do something stupid or outrageous. What's wrong with you? Is that what it is? I guess so. I need to hear it in context. Like I need to, I don't know what the inflection is. Like, is, is it what she like, or is it what she like? I realize I'm nitpicking, but I'm so curious because this is such a strange. The listeners will let us know. Please let us know. Please tell us. Okay. Moving on. They go down to Hagrid's. Couple interesting things about Hagrid here. Yeah, it's Saturday. You have yeah. nothing to do. Go down to Hagrid's. Yeah. Hut. And so Hagrid has like his hair slicked back with axle grease. He has a tie on. He has a suit. He's dressed really nice. I mean, nice for him. It yeah. is a hairy suit. It's interesting because we have the house elf subject brought up again, and we get Hagrid's opinion on the house elf. What is Hagrid's opinion? Kind of the same as Fred and George. Look, they love it. This is what they love to do is to serve humans, is what he says. And he's like, you'd be doing them a disservice, you know, otherwise. And so Hermione brings up, well, what about Dobby? You know, right. I heard that Dobby has now changed his mind and wants wages and all this stuff. And he says, well, there's always going to be some idiot in every bunch. Yeah. Like he really dismisses Dobby. He does. And this is the first time, even though his reaction is really reminiscent of like Fred and George's and Ron's, this is the first time that anyone is suggesting to Hermione that she would literally be doing something cruel to yeah. a house elf by getting it freed. I don't know. I'm so, I'm so like, there's a pretzel in my head <laughs> to put a Talladega Nights reference in there. I just feel so conflicted about this like i know hermione is right i need more information on the house elves i need yeah. to know if they're under an imperious curse i need to know more about their history you'll you'll learn more you'll get more so why is hagrid dressed up by the way because it's about to be dinner time <laughs> yeah and he walks out and 
on purpose stumbles into Madame Maxime and is just like, he is smitten with Maxime. He gets really, he like blushes really deep. It's so cute. Where else is he going to meet giant chicks? Right, right. I mean, like this is a woman that's like his height or maybe an inch different. And did you, have you thought about maybe it's the only like practical sexual partner he could possibly have? I mean, that you have to take those things into consideration. Yeah. You know, like I think about Shaquille O'Neal and his wife. Have you ever seen pictures of them? No. Side by side, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, obviously tall AF. Yeah. But like his wife is like exceptionally short. Hmm. Like she's like five foot even or something. And so the photos of them next to each other, it's like really. I mean, and you can't help but think of like how the sex works. It has crossed my mind. Shaquille O'Neal's sex life. I'm sorry. It just has. I used to always think about, remember that show to catch a predator? Yeah. And there was the girl who's like actually 19, but she looks like she's 12 and she's like, I'm going to make some sweet tea. Make yourself at home. I'll be right out. Like, I'm going to just put some laundry in, like have some tea. I'll be right out. Like this is a 19 year old girl who looks so much like a 12 year old girl that she can pass for a 12 year old girl. How fucked up is her boyfriend? I know. I know. Who's like 19 dating another 19-year-old that looks like a 13-year-old. It's it's a moral gray area. And by the way, somehow not the first time we've brought up to catch a predator on a Harry Potter podcast. I'm really like a little bit disturbed about this. So Hagrid leaves them in the dust to go to the Great Hall. And they're kind of like, well, I guess we should make our way there. It's time. And this is, you know, the second feast in a row. So, A, you know, people are not as enthused about the food. But also, like, everyone is just kind of, like, not interested in the feast because they're so ready for these champions to get chosen. The first champion to be announced is the champion from Durmstrang. Victor Crumb. No surprise Yeah, there. we all saw it coming. We all saw it coming. He's clearly the favorite. And he also is, he's really good at Quidditch. And he's probably the favorite because he's just kind of like good, right? He's kind of their golden yeah. boy. And the goblet is not like randomly spitting out a name from each no. school. It's literally determining who is the most worthy. And Karkaroff has been really like looking after Victor Crumb, saying he has a little bit of a head cold. Victor, do you want to go back to the ship? Do you need um, some mold wine? Like, this is our dude. And what it can seems Daddy like Dumbledore do understands that. <laughs> the Bobaton name flies yes. out of the goblet. Fleur de la Cour. And it's Fleur de la Cour. Yes. And this is the hot Vila girl that Ron was spazzing about. Yes. And then the reactions of the other Beaubaton who weren't chosen, they're like sobbing, but they're also like really emotionally demonstrative, which is another particularly French trait in every French person I've known. You know, they're not afraid of their emotions. It's what is it what I feel, you know. And then much to the chagrin of the Gryffindors who really wanted one of their guys in, uh-huh. we get a Hufflepuff name that pops out. Cedric Diggory. Cedric! Whose dad, Amos, is the literal worst. Amos, the literal worst. Cedric, really good chap, though. Really good chap. He's the cat that at the Quidditch game tried to help Harry out. He didn't want the game to end the way it did. Seems to be an honorable lad. The twins were still pissed at him. Remember, Ron is still, he calls him that idiot earlier in this chapter. Just because he, like, beat them. Also, I'm sorry, thank you, Hufflepuff champion and the Hufflepuff pride display that we see when he's announced like literally they make so much noise it takes forever for the noise to die out because this is like Hufflepuff's moment okay this is a really big deal as a Hufflepuff yeah the time Cedric got chosen 
<laughs> for the Triwizard Tournament. And the other students are probably just like, cool, this is our dude that's representing our school. Yeah, I feel like Cedric is generally like, I, I think he's like pretty well liked. I mean, like who could have beef with Cedric, who's like a nice, handsome dude, except for fucking Ron, who's just jealous anyway. And then it's like, cool. So we've got our three champions. Yes. We have Crumb, we have Fleur, and we have Cedric. Yeah. Yeah. Then the Goblet of Fire spits another name out, and Dumbledore catches it, and it says Harry effing Potter on it. Harry effing Potter. So Did you what put is your name in the Goblet of Fire? What is this all about? I don't know. I want to ask you. I mean, obviously, I know what it's all about. Yeah. But what do you think it's all about? I think it's just part of everything playing out the way it's supposed to. It's part of the prophecy, man. Yeah. yeah. There's a really funny meme that says Harry Potter series in review or something. It's like books one through three. Fuck yeah, I'm Harry Potter. Books four through seven. Fuck, I'm Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> kind of one of those moments. Unexpected turn of events for sure. Yeah, crazy town. So I do find myself wondering what Professor Kevlani sees with all these new faces coming into our story. Well, I'm going to tell you what my prophecy was going to be. Oh, okay. And then I'm going to give you my actual prophecy. Love it. So my original prophecy was going to be Sirius is coming to the Triwizard Tournament. Okay. That's why he's on the way to the school. Okay. But that's not because I had a profound revelation last night. Oh, God. And that has to do with Trelawney herself. Oh. I started to ask myself why J.K. even wrote the character of Trelawney, mm. right? Mm -hmm. What purpose has she really served? Yeah, she predicted some bad stuff was going to happen to Harry, but, like, we kind of already know that. Yeah. But I think the reason that she wrote Trelawney as a character is to show us how uneven and an imperfect science the ability of being a seer is mm. and she did that because dumbledore is a seer okay. i think dumbledore is a seer i think that he is prophetic either because it's a natural born ability that he just has okay. or because he's such a powerful wizard yeah that it just comes with the territory of being a powerful wizard uh-huh so, like I always say, Dumbledore's the puppet master. He knows kind of like that this prophecy is unveiling itself. Yeah. But he doesn't have all the information. Right. So, kind of like you see these psychics on TV that are like, I see a tall man. But they don't know anything else about it. Right. Like, I think that he sees into the future and sees things happening. Yeah. But my prophecy is that, huh, isn't this like... Inception. It's like meta. It's my, very meta. My prophecy is that Dumbledore is prophetic and is a seer and that we will find out that he has seen what is going to play out with Harry, maybe even before Harry was born. Wow. That's a big one. I'm ready to hear Hedwig's digital get down song, the Triwizard Tournament Champion Edition. Hoot, 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 hoot. That was really regal, I yeah. think is the word that comes to mind. Yes, I was kind of thinking of like the Olympics. I love it. Well, our listener question comes from 
Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Who sent us an audio message. I'm going to play it for you right now. Cool. Hi, Kevin Amanda. So I have two questions um, based from the first episode of this season. One's for Kev and one's for Amanda. So the first one is for Amanda. It's about um, the second chapter where Harry is writing a letter to Sirius and telling him about his scar hurting and the dream he had and um, how he's kind of saying that he's never really had a father figure and he didn't ever have like an adult grown up wizard that he could ask these questions to and how amazing it felt to have this father figure suddenly in his life. And I was just wondering, do you ever feel like Lupin gets a bit of a raw deal here? Because he arguably built a stronger relationship with Harry throughout Prisoner of Azkaban. He was the one who taught him about how to um, cast a Patronus and suddenly he's kind of usurped by Sirius when he comes back into Harry's life and the truth about everything that happened came out. Um, Have you ever thought maybe Lupin deserved a bit more airtime perhaps or why do you think they don't have as much of a relationship? Why doesn't loop and write to Harry during the holidays after uh, Prisoner of Azkaban when they're not teachers anymore? Or arguably, why do you think he never contacted Harry before he became his teacher? Because presumably he still cared about him having been his parents' friend. Um, just wondered what you think as a... I know you're a strong Lupin fan. Uh, so my second question is for Kev. Um, I was really interested when you were talking about wanting to have like fan fiction or comic about the background of some of the characters and like their childhood. So particularly I think you were talking about Sirius and Hagrid. And I was just wondering, what do you think those would be like? Because you haven't got a huge amount of information about their childhoods um, from reading the stories up to this point. I was just wondering, what do you imagine their, I suppose, origin stories, if you will, would be like? Or do you not have any idea? just curious loving the podcast as always and uh look forward to hearing what you think about the rest of the book bye excellent questions as always thanks caroline oh my God. caroline who has the best accent of any living person on the planet like just talk to me all the time please can we like zoom and you can just like talk to me throughout the day yikes okay so i'll i'll, I'll tackle my question first so first of all does lupin get a raw deal yeah I mean, you could ask me that at any point in the series and I'll say, yes, Lupin got a raw deal. We need to have like way more Lupin in all of these books. In terms of, I I think the really, really, really interesting question here is like, why does Lupin and Harry's mind get, like you said, usurped by Sirius? And also why does Lupin not write to Harry during these times? I think those are really interesting questions without clear answers. So My conceptualization of this is, for one thing, Sirius comes into Harry's life like a bat out of hell. You know, I mean, like, he is a murderer, and then he's not a murderer, and then he's, I'm your your godfather, and do you want to come live with me? And it's all like, bam, 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 bam. And it's really intense, and I feel like you would would kind of have to form a really strong bond with someone who just roars into your life in this way. And Lupin's reveal of his relationship with Harry's parents is 
a lot more slower to unfold. You know, I mean, Harry has these little clues throughout Prisoner of Azkaban and then just kind of finds out at the end that Lupin was in the mix too. But by that point, Sirius is very much in the mix. And I feel like Sirius is the type of personality that everyone's always going to be in his shadow. In terms of why Lupin doesn't write to Harry, I think it's a more complicated question. Some of the things that I love the most about this character are his flaws. And one of his huge flaws that we've already seen in Prisoner of Azkaban is this immense guilt and shame that he just wears like a coat. And I could imagine that because of how everything went down when Harry's parents were killed, I could imagine Lupin finding some way to blame himself for how that happened or to feel some shame for not saying this or not doing that or, you know, whatever. And I could also imagine, just based on what I know about Lupin as a character series long, that that could drive him to completely shut himself out of Harry's life Mm. because he feels like that's what he deserves. He's a complicated, complicated man, Remus Lupin. Yes, you love him. I really do. But I love him because of these flaws. I think he's such an interesting character and very interesting question. But that's my answer for that. Now, what about your question? So fan fiction. I think that we will see Hagrid as... I kind of imagine Hagrid being like abandoned. Yeah. Having kind of a rough childhood and having to just sort of depend on himself... Wow. Um, maybe even like raised himself from a young age or something. Interesting. Yeah, that's what I see with him. As far as the fan fiction of like the kids at school, yeah. I don't know, but I would really love to see the power dynamic, like I've said before, between those friends. I think that we would have a lot more substance to go on. Oh, you mean like the Marauders? Yeah. Like the, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for but sure. But I've also mentioned Fox backstory. Yeah. What I'd really love to see is how Dumbledore got Fox. Mm. And what I think it is, is I think that he's had Fox since he was like a little baby. Oh, my God. Like his initial birth. So they've not just his had, rebirth. They've grown up together. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's lovely. Oh, that's so lovely. I love these backstories. It's Hagrid's backstory that you imagine is really interesting to me because I wonder what it is about him as we know him in these pages that suggests that childhood to you. I mean, do you know of any other character that is written as living by themselves in a separate place away from the school? He doesn't even live in the castle. Right. He lives in a hut, which is practical because he's messing around with animals. He's kind of like down on the farm. But I think Hagrid likes to kind of be off by himself. His only friends are these three kids. And animals. And animals. You know? and So it just just screams like loner guy to me. You know what light bulb just happened for me? It sounds a lot like Frank Bryce. He doesn't live. Nice Frank Bryce? Yeah. He doesn't live in the giant riddle house. He lives just outside of it by himself in like a little shack. Whoa. I never, ever saw parallels there before i would love to see a wrestling match between nice frank bryce and hagrid damn hagrid would win though hagrid would win against anyone not necessarily like he's a big dude (laughs) but he might not be an athlete he might not be able to like move quick and come off the top ropes and stuff neither can frank bryce Frank Bryce is like 72 years old so he probably can't either 
wine and uses a, like a hot water bottle on his like bad bum leg. But back in his day, he was so, a high flyer. Nice Frank Bryce back in the day versus Hagrid. Yes. That might be a fair fight. Yes. Okay. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you so much, Caroline. And you guys keep the questions coming. We've gotten some really good ones lately that we have queued up for the next few episodes. Did we ever get an answer from Caroline of what part of England she's from to kind of determine what sort of accent she has? She did tell us that. It is. So, yes. Okay, I found it. She said she grew up in Somerset, but she does not have a Somerset accent unless she's been drinking cider or she's reading a story to her class and she's doing the voices because remember caroline shared with us um one of the first times she called in that uh she's a teacher she said her parents were both from army families and they have the basic kind of like posh southern english accents what she's saying is that that kind of just informs her accent so i mean like what i always what i kind of took from this email she feels like she has kind of a neutral accent but she did say for a demonstration of a classic somerset accent which is where she grew up watch hot fuzz because that's the accent in hot fuzz um or at least the clip she sent i'll put it in our show notes for this week the clip that she sent it is hilarious i love that movie she was really surprised to know that like anyone in the u.s had ever even heard of that movie oh yeah People love hot fuzz. So if anyone wants to know what the North Carolina accent sounds like, watch Talladega Nights. Or just listen to Kev. Yeah, well, yeah, my (laughs) voice is the North Carolina accent. But if you want to hear a more extreme Southern version. Yes. Talladega Nights is an accurate representation of daggone North Carolina, Mountain Dew. My kids will kick your ass. It is 100% accurate. Because in North Carolina, the Southern accent... It doesn't have a long draw. It's not like Savannah, Georgia. No, that's or a like deep way South down accent. in Mississippi. In North Carolina, it's almost a little bit choppier. Yeah. Like I put the damn carburetor on the damn thing. Damn yeah. thing run like you ain't never seen, boy. That thing take off and get her on down a daggone road, man. Yeah. There's like a little like uh, some choppiness to it. Lots of vowels become eyes with the North Carolina accent. You know, like A's and E's become eyes. Man. You Come know, on, man. Come on, man. Werewolf. Werewolf. <laughs> Lots of consonants just get dropped from yeah. words, apparently. Um, and by the way, another super distinct U.S. accent for anyone who doesn't live in the U.S. is the Boston accent. But I must say, most movies set in Boston do not get it right because my family's from Boston. Now, I don't do a perfect Boston accent because I didn't grow up there, but I have heard it my whole life and i'll tell you the only movie that gets it right is because everyone in the movie is from boston is goodwill hunting yeah. except robin williams who did a terrible i boston got a accent. number how do you like them apples <laughs> chuck i had a double burger take your fucking sandwich <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna put your sandwich up here i'm gonna put it on layaway like your mom's couch like your mom's couch <laughs> Fuck, i love that movie It's time for marriage lessons. Well, that was quite nice. I mean, we do have actual intro music for the marriage lessons, yeah. but I think that was a really nice addendum. Yeah. Do you know that. the lyrics to that? Yeah. Tell me. Marriage is fun and marriage is sweet. Wouldn't <laughs> you like to have a treat? <laughs> yes, I would. I'm actually very You can hungry. wear a ring and have something to eat. Well, now you've got to resolve the... Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is sweet. Okay, so it just comes full circle at the end. Well, that is just charming. I'm up first. My marriage lesson comes from Hermione's diatribe about revisionist Hogwarts history. 
remember, up until this point, up until book four, she loves Hogwarts a history. She quotes it all the time. She is always down on people who haven't read it. Like she is a fan of Hogwarts a history. And she finds out new information and completely changes her opinion about Hogwarts a history. Now it's like freaking rag. Like, yeah, there's maybe some useful tidbits throughout, but it's like not a great book. But I actually think this is a really good thing because my marriage lesson and what I was inspired by in this moment, I got Hermione's on a roll with my marriage lessons, by the way, is to be willing to be flexible in your beliefs, to be willing to be flexible in the things you're a fan of. Because I think sometimes we maintain a love of something or a fandom of something because it's just something we've always liked. And so maybe we just sort of feel like loyalty to it, but we don't enjoy it anymore. Or maybe, you know, you really like we talked about Shallow Howl a few episodes ago. I remember thinking that movie was so funny when I was younger and when I lived in a different social and political climate than I do now. Now that movie makes me cringe. So I think we've got to be willing to be flexible with the things we love when we get new information that really makes us just not like something anymore. So relate this to the marriage. To me, I think this is just more of a lesson about, like a lot of my lessons are, being a better person, which makes you a better partner. I feel like when you're too rigid in your beliefs, whether it's being a fan of something or having some kind of belief system, when you're so rigid in that, I mean, I think that really easily becomes stubbornness. I think it really easily becomes digging my heels into something just because that's what I've always believed. And that's a really hard thing to surpass and overcome. Now, fortunately, I do think you and I are pretty good at this. So I guess this would be the kind of lesson where I would say this is something we should congratulate ourselves when we're able to do, you know, pat ourselves on the back, pat each other on the back when we see this kind of flexibility and fluidity in our opinions, but also to make sure that we continue to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think about how much I've learned about you through your love for this fandom. And I would say the same about you. I've learned so much about you in doing the show and seeing you discover these books and the things that I love, but the things you take from it that are different is really, really, really cool. Cool. I like it. Thank you. What's your marriage lesson? My marriage lesson has to do with believing in the impossible, which is kind of like what Harry is doing at the end of the chapter, the last chapter of the last episode where he's imagining himself winning the Triwizard Tournament. Mm. Don't couch yourself out and believe in the impossible. So it looks like Harry's going to the Triwizard Tournament, something that he never thought would happen, but he allowed himself to dream. He allowed yeah. himself to consider it. And really in the past couple weeks since we've been home and in the past week when I haven't been working, it's really made me think about, okay, well, this is something that has drastically interrupted the trajectory of my life. If you would have asked me, you know, where are you going to be three years from now? I would say probably working for the same company. Yeah. Probably doing the same thing because I like my job. I like my coworkers. I like the benefits. Yeah. But I never pause to consider what if this job is just ripped out from underneath you? What if I don't get it back? Yeah. Then I'm going to have to choose something new to do. Yeah. And that really scares the crap out of me. The thought of having to start a new job or learn a new skill, 
But then I had to remind myself to believe in the impossible, to imagine what could be. And as a married couple, I think that we need to look at things together as not impossible. You know, our marriage seemed impossible to us. Going to Paris, the honeymoon almost seemed impossible. There are a lot of things that we could easily write off as that'll never happen to us. Yeah. We'll never have, you know, we'll never own a house or we'll never have this or we'll never have that. And that defeatist way of thinking is just not good. We need to believe in the impossible. And I'm really starting to think about new things that I want to learn and study and maybe possible new career paths and that sort of thing. And how this relates to the marriage is that I know that you always support my dreams, even if they're as big and fanciful as possible. Yeah. If I told you I really, really want to become a great impressionist painter, you would never say to me, honey, you don't even paint. You've never been to art school. What do you know about painting? You would say, I think you can do that. I truly believe you can do that. And if you told me that you want to be a ballet dancer and you want to get your start at 32 years old, I wouldn't say, bro, you're 32. You're never going to make it. I would say, okay, like what do we need to do to start working towards this impossible goal? I don't mean that you need to hang all of your hope onto dreams. Yeah. But dare to dream. Dare to dream. Constant vigilance. (laughs) Like I'm really considering going back to school to learn ASL, American Sign Language. Love it. And I've been thinking about it for about a year now. And I've started to tool around with like some little classes and YouTube videos and stuff online. And I find it really fascinating. Yeah. And I've listened to a couple of interviews and read a few articles lately about deaf with a capital D, deaf culture. Yeah. And um, and just the history of deaf people. And as a foreign language, to me, a foreign language, it is a language. Definitely. Um, it really, really interests me a lot more than learning Spanish or French or something. And so I'm allowing myself lately to believe that I could learn sign language and that I could possibly be an interpreter one day. Yes. And I'm daring to believe in something that seems impossible. I'm 41 years old. I'm going to start learning sign language at 41. How old am I going to be by the time I'm fluent? That shit's not helpful. No, it's not. It's really not. And can I just say, you have really long fingers, and thus I think that you would like be very good at ASL because it you would be making more clear, distinct motions with your hands. Yeah. And what started it is that I have two deaf friends in the roller coaster enthusiast community who I communicate with a lot online. But when we're in person, we have to type to each other or I have to voice dictate into a phone, voice to text and have them read it. And so it's really difficult to have the great conversations that we have online it's hard to have those conversations offline. Yeah. And it's the first time that I've really run into it where I'm like, man, this is a language I really would like to know. Yes. Go for that. So there's me demonstrating that marriage lesson. And you do the same for me. Believe in the impossible and support your partner in their beliefs. I love it. For our Marauder shout outs this week, I want to call your memory back to the Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson that we covered at the very top of the show, where Moody is making 
the various children that he teaches do different kind of like somewhat silly things, right? Like singing the national anthem Mm -hmm. or pretending to be a squirrel. I want to know if our marauders cast the imperious curse on us. Now this is on us as a couple, as a unit. What do you think they would make us do? (laughs) If they put the curse on us, what would they make us do? Yes. Okay. So first up, let's start with Faith Kenfield. She would make us do something really nice, like dance. Yeah, with each other? Yes, she would make us ballroom dance. Oh my God, I would love to be able to ballroom dance. Natalia Ward. The warden. The warden. You know what she would do? She would do like that um, that Stanford prison experiment. (gasps) She would make one of us the jailer and make the other one believe that they were the prisoner. (laughs) Yes. It's a really famous psychological experiment and a very unethical one. How about Vicky Gutherless? Tricky Vicky. Tricky Vicky would make us play pranks on each other. And you hate pranks. You don't I like really pranks do. to be pulled oh, on you. God. And you don't like to pull pranks. So she would do that. That would be like really uncomfortable like I would sit down me. and it would be a whoopee cushion. Oh, God. And then you'd help me stand back up, but you'd have a joy buzzer in your hand. Oh, good. And we'd yeah. be like, oh, Tricky Vicky's oh, at it again. Tricky Vicky. How about Ben Clark? Ben Clark. What would he make us do? You know, on Ben's Twitter feed, he's very politically intelligent. He cares about issues. He talks about issues. Like, he's, he's an activist. He would make us give TED Talks. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Oh, my God. I don't know what my TED Talk would be about. Hufflepuff House. You wouldn't have a choice. Oh, Because Ben would give it to you. He has you under the curse. Oh, my God. I love it. How about Kelly Moore? She would make us drive to Louisville and drink um, bourbon with her. Yes. She does not. Which I would gladly do. Yes. She does not not have have to to put put us under the imperious curse to do that. How about Breanne Brown? Double B. Yes. She would make us go to a Browns game. (laughs) Please. No. Anything about that. No. How about Dean Heath? Dean, he would make us, what's the, um, what's the thing that's big with the Panthers? The dabbing. Oh, God. He'd make us dab. He would make us dab. Yeah. No, or Dean. Or he'd make us do the Cupid shuffle. I don't want to dab or do the Cupid shuffle. I don't either. God. Heather Bevels. She would make us watch her kid so that she could get a break. Again, do not need to be put under the imperious curse to do that because he is cute as shit. How about... Caitlin Dismuke. Free throws. <laughs> Free throws and three-pointers. Jesus. Just drills all day. Would this be a Neville doing gymnastics situation? Like, we would be good at it because we're under the imperious curse? And it's, even if it's not She doesn't we care. Can, she's, she's in it for the love of the game. Oh, okay. How about Nick Tillman? Oh, Nick Tillman? He would use us to go out and, like, break kneecaps to collect money for him. Yeah. Would you be a really yeah. good use of or the like Imperious Curse? Or, like, knock off, a, like, a cigarette truck, you know, and then give him the money. He but would they're... go He would go full mob boss on what us. What is a cigarette truck? This is, like, back in the day. You know what I mean? Like, the cigarette truck comes into town, and you, like, rob the guy driving it, and then you resell the cigarettes. I think I'm getting that from a Bronx tale. Oh, okay. <laughs> or it could be Goodfellas. Hmm. Sounds made up. Nick will okay. let us know. Yeah. How about Josh Bailey? Josh Bailey. He would make us be personal bartenders for him and make him all kind of fancy drinks. Which would just be payback because he does that for us all he the time. always makes us fancy drinks. He really does. Yes. And how about Jennifer Ayers? 
She'd make us go fly a kite. <laughs> go fly a kite in the airs. Yeah. Oh, my God. How about awesome Austin Scroggins? Awesome Austin. I think he would make us fly to Austin, Texas and meet mm. him so that we could go to South by Southwest together. He doesn't live in Austin, Texas. But I know. Sure. <laughs> We would all just meet in Austin, Texas. Yeah, maybe next year, Austin. Not, no. not looking good this year. Not looking good this year. No. And last but certainly not least, Swilly Tilly herself, Miss Samantha Tillman. Swilly Tilly. She would make us chug, 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 yes. chug. Yes, and she would get great delight out of it. And I am a lightweight, so that would be a really fun use of the Imperial. Have Coast. I ever told you about heave? Heave. No. So... My buddy, Matt from Yorkshire, who's also a listener of the podcast. And a patron. And a patron. He likes to, as we're going up the lift hill of roller coasters, especially particularly slow lift hills. Stop. We all on each side of the train act as if we have big oars and we're rowing oh my God. the ship up and we go, heave, heave. He what a bunch of dorks. Oh my God, we're such dorks. <laughs> oh my God. All right, end of show announcements. At the top of these, we'd like to remind you to communicate with us. We've gotten so many great messages, check-ins, you know, people asking how we're doing, but people telling us how they're doing, how they're spending their time, who they want to quarantine with from the wizarding world. We've had some great responses to that. Keep it coming and send us questions, definitely. Here's what I'm wondering, Amanda. What? We haven't talked about this but now that i think about it what if we were to do a zoom chat with some of the listeners i think that would be amazing you guys let us know if that's something that you would be into i think it's a great idea let us know if you're interested in in the idea of doing a zoom chat i have a zoom account i can send out the link for the meeting how many people can we put on the screen at once like I, eight maybe oh i think you can do more than that i really want to say you can have like maybe 25 we'll look into that this could be coming through social media. That could be coming. And if we have a lot of interest and it exceeds the cap of how many, then we'll just schedule more than one. Yeah. And maybe what we'll do is for the Zoom chat, maybe we'll have a topic <gasps> that we can pick. Stop. And that we can all talk about or all give our two cents about. Stop it. Like it could be, you know, a Harry Potter topic, like your favorite character or something about the plot. Or it could just be maybe something fun stuff about like where you live like tell us a little bit about the town that you live in holy crap i love this that idea be so fun yes so we will update you on the show about that but also follow us on our social media accounts because we'll post to those as well so that would be twitter at fox and foxhound instagram at the fox and the foxhound and facebook.com slash the fox and the foxhound we tend to post the same things across platforms so even if you just want to follow us on one of those you should still get those details as they come out but yeah i think that would be so fun and i would love to do that you can also call our hedwig's digital get down phone line voicemail line and you can text this number as well it's 910-297-8065 if you live in another country just type a bunch of random numbers before that number right and it will cost you 147 dollars. <laughs> yeah please don't um please don't do that unless you know exactly how much it's going to cost you and are comfortable with that figure 
And I think you just type a one <laughs> before the number, not a bunch of numbers. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Vox and the Vox Hound. Special thank yous to our composer, Judson Hurd. You can find out more about his music at judsonhurd.com. It's J-U-D-S-O-N-H-U-R-D.com. And our manager of mischief and sometimes minister of magic. And sometimes bartender. And sometimes bartender, Joshua J. Bay Bailey. And finally, make sure you... Find and bookmark our website, thefoxandthefoxhound.com. We post our marriage lessons and our prophecies. They're all archived on there, so you can go back and look at previous episodes. And make sure you check out our show notes every week because there's a lot of fun stuff in there, links to things that we talked about. And you can also listen to the episode right from the show note, which is cool. And don't forget to spread some kindness and some positivity in the world. Catch up with people you haven't talked to in a while. Yeah. Think about some things you want to do in your life. Yeah. I saw something really cool. I'm always talking about the podcast 91 Reasons. Yeah. So what Jeff and his family are doing is they have a cork board that is all of the things they want to do when life goes back to normal again. Wow. When we don't have the restrictions of stay at home and that sort of thing, I when we're able that. to like meet in groups and go to non-essential businesses and that sort of thing. And so they just have pieces of paper and every day you do as many or as few as you want. And you just write down, like, what are you going to do? And I think that's really good because it's giving you something to look forward to. Definitely. It's giving you hope for the future. But it's also allowing you to take inventory of what's important to you and what you're grateful for in your life. I think that's fantastic. Oh, what a good idea. Are you ready for my Harry Potter dad joke? I am. Did you hear about the Bobaton champion with the deviated septum? No. Yeah, her name's Snore Delacour. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready for yours. How did Dumbledore find out that Durmstrang was sneaking down into the Hogwarts kitchen to steal snacks at night? How? He found Victor Crumbs. Stop. <laughs> I really like that one. That's adorable. Well, I, I can say with you know, 99% confidence that we will get to discuss, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire next week? Finally. Yeah. I won't be such a noob. Yeah, you won't be such a noob. But now, I mean, you're not going to see, because this is a book to movie translation. We're not mm-hmm. doing the movie for a long time. But, you know, I think you're going to have a much more robust understanding of the, the problems with this line. And the next chapter that we're going to read is called The Four Champions. Yeah. Which leads me to believe that they're going to let Harry participate it's a magical binding contract. Tournament. The Goblet of Fire is a binding magical contract, hon. You can't no. back out. Like, is it now called a quad wizard tournament? No, because that sounds terrible. Go streaking through the quad. <laughs> We're going streaking. <laughs> bring through bring the your quad green... and up to the gymnasium. <laughs> Snoop a loop. Bring your green hat. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs>